Father, we thank You so much for Your Word, for the truth that You've given us. It is Your Word. Father, in spite of the fact that sometimes we have urges or instincts, and sometimes those are even consistent with the truth of Your Word, those things are not Your Word. We trust Your Word as our ultimate authority. So, Lord, we look to Your Word. We know that Your Word is planted, it is sown in the hearts of people, and Lord, uh, there are people who are the good soil, and the Word is planted deep within, it changes them, it transforms them, it brings life. Lord, it gives them repentance and faith, gives them the desire to follow Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as we study Your Word today, may that be true of anyone who's watching or even here on a Saturday I pray that this will be true for them. If they're not a believer, that they would believe in Christ and be saved today. pray that they would be the good soil. pray that they would not be the bad soils. There are three of them, Lord, we're going to be looking at today, or three of them we're going to begin looking at today. And I pray, Lord, that uh, we would see these things, we would take great warning, and at the same time, we would be encouraged at the way your kingdom is going, and uh, Lord, that you are growing your kingdom. It's ultimately in your hands Uh, the condition of people's heart as they hear the Word. So, we ask that You would change our hearts, mold us and make us, help us be receptive to Your Word today. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as always, it is a blessing to be with you. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 13. Matthew 13, and today we're actually, in earnest, going to launch into the parables. We've been sort of giving ourselves a running start to these parables, but not actually studying any of them. Today, we're going to look at this first parable. It's the longest of the kingdom parables, and it also includes, a few verses later, we'll look at this, the longest interpretation of any of the parables. And looking at this, it does give us a bit of a template for understanding all the rest of the parables, and so we'll take our time on this first one. It'll take this week and next week as we cover these things, but this will give us a start as we look at the parables of the kingdom. This parable is the parable not of the sower. I know that your Bibles probably say that. The parable of the sower. And most people across Christendom, if you want to call it that, have called this parable the parable of the sower. But if you actually read the parable, you realize there's not much about the sower here. In fact, the story is not about the sower. It's about the soils. There is a parable in Mark, and we looked at it when we studied the book of Mark. I think I've preached it since then as well. There is a parable about the sower, how he sows seed, and he goes home and sleeps, and he doesn't know how these things happen. Miraculously, uh, God raises up these plants, but uh, this is not a parable about the sower. This is the parable of the soils. That's what we're looking at today, the parable of the soils. One of the better ways to read the Gospels as you go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the Gospels. As you read the Gospels, one of the better interpretive principles, a principle that you try to understand it by, is to observe the way people respond to the truth, to the person, and to the gospel of Jesus. Going all the way back to the beginning of Matthew, some of you remember, you have this announcement of Jesus' birth, you have Mary's response, you have Joseph's response, sort of in phases there, we studied this. You have the the birth of Jesus and the response of the wise men who who realized this is whom they longed for, and they were thrilled, and they worshiped Jesus. You have in that same story the response of the scribes and other leaders who were 
fundamentally indifferent to the arrival of the Messiah. They could care less. And then, of course, you have the notorious response of Herod who wanted to kill what he thought might be a rival to his leadership, and he would kill many children in the process. We saw this series of responses again when we looked at chapter 8, the nature of discipleship, of genuine discipleship. You have those with great sacrificial defining faith like the centurion, Jesus marveling at his faith. You have the two men who've been healed of demon possession. They have true faith as well, great faith. They sit at the feet of Jesus and, and learn in discipleship. We also saw that sort of indifferent response at the beginning of that chapter with these lepers who are healed, but they don't really are the leper who is healed, but he doesn't really give honor or glory to Christ. He doesn't even do what, even attempt to do what Jesus asked him to do. And we also saw in that chapter the response of the people of Gadara who said, get out of here. We don't want any of this magic. We don't want this uh, powerful person in our presence. Well, the parable of the soils looks beyond those responses to the heart of man. What is true about their hearts that made them respond in that way? This line of uh, of thinking is helpful when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to ministry, but it's also helpful when you evaluate your own heart. What kind of heart do I have? As I evaluate my own response to, to gospel preaching, to gospel music, as I evaluate my own heart, what kind of soil am I? So that's the question as we look through this. You ask the question, what kind of soil am I? What kind of soil is my heart? What kind of soil? Are you striving to be the good soil? Do you receive the Word of God with gladness? Do you find ways to obey it? Are you indifferent? Or do you rebel against it? That's the ultimate question here. Flowing from that question is a helpful instruction for those of us who are followers of Christ about how the kingdom will go. And we see that there's a spreading of seed, and there's a lot of rejection. And there's a lot of different types of rejection. And that's what we see in this passage here. So, let me read this to you. I'm going to read verses 3 down to 9, and then I'll skip to Jesus' um, interpretation or description of what that parable means, beginning in verse 18 going down to verse 23. So, follow along, 3 to 9, and then I'll skip to 18 to 23. Let's read this. I'll read aloud. You can follow along. And He told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Hear then the parable of the sower, verse 18. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, 
immediately he falls away. As for what is sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what is sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and another thirty. This is the word of God. The very first baptism recorded in the nation of Korea was July 11th, 1886, somewhat of an anniversary today. A missionary by the name of Horace Underwood baptized a man by the name of Tosano. What Underwood and other missionaries had discovered, though, is that the gospel predated them in Korea. They, they thought they were the first ones to bring the gospel to Korea, but what they discovered is Christians. There were people in Korea believing and had already known the gospel. And there's a story of how the gospel came to Korea. Uh, it's probably somewhat true. It may be a little bit apocryphal or a little bit of, of uh, fairy tale involved, but the story goes like this. There were three Korean fellows, possibly brothers, and they wanted to leave Korea. They wanted to go up into China to find work. This is sometime in the mid-1800s. Gospel and missionaries were not allowed in Korea at that time, but they were going to China. From the West, they had made trips to China. You think of Hudson Taylor and others who had gone to China uh, to begin sharing the gospel with the people in China. So, these three Korean men went up into China, and they got work there and worked for some years, and after some time, they came in touch with a, a, a missionary. They heard the gospel. They learned the truth. The missionary gave them Chinese Bibles, which if you didn't know, the, the root of the Korean language and most Eastern languages is uh, from the Chinese, so they could, they could understand it. They could read it. They, they took these Chinese Bibles, and they loved these Chinese Bibles, and they read the Word, and they with joy received the truth. They were true Christians, and all three of these men got passionate about taking the gospel back to their homeland of Korea. And on that day, Korea was closed to outside religions. They didn't want the Bible to be there. They didn't want these other Western religions to be there. And so, these three men came up with an idea. They said, why don't we, uh, instead of just all three of us sort of waltzing up with our Bibles in hand, why don't we try to figure out how to get the Bible in without them knowing about it? And instead of all three of us going at the same time, because we don't all three want to get kicked out or worse, executed, why don't we do it in phases, one at a time, and try different methods? The first guy took his Bible and just buried it deep in his luggage and went up to the border. The border guard in Korea said, we need to go through your stuff, went through it, found a Bible, and beheaded him on the spot, executed him. The next guy waited a few days, obviously, and thought, well, maybe if I take a little bit different tact, maybe if I take pages of the Bible, my favorite verses and sections of the Bible, and take these pages and tear them out of the Bible and then hide those pages in my luggage, they won't find it. But he had the same result. He went up there, they began to look through his stuff, they began to find these Bible pages, and they executed him. The third guy, trying to think of some way to get the Bible into Korea, he took his Bible and he took the pages out of the Bible and he tore the pages in tiny strips and wove those strips into some rope that he used to tie down his stuff. And he was successful. 
He got the Bible into Korea. He reassembled the Bible, and he began to share the gospel. This nameless worker began to share the gospel, and he uh, ostensibly is the first one to bring the gospel to Korea. And what he found, according to the historian that I was reading this story this week about, what he found was fertile soil for the gospel. People listened to the gospel, and they were enamored, and they were moved, and they responded, not just kind of on the surface. They responded with the abandonment of Buddhism and and other religions, and they began to turn to Jesus Christ. The Word came to them, and it made a massive difference, so much so that, like I said, a few years later when the missionaries began to show up, they began to realize there's a lot of people here who are already believers. It's probably explains why Korea is one of the most Christian countries today in the world. Thousands, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people have come to know Christ in Korea. That last fellow came to Korea. He began to preach what he found was fertile soil. The soil was prepared. The Word was planted deep in their hearts, and there was genuine fruit, lasting fruit in Korea. Well, As I read this story this week, I realized the language that the author was using, the same language I'm using about a fertile soil and and the people receiving the Word, this language comes from this parable. Jesus is the one who started that lingo about the Word coming to people like a seed being planted in good soil. It comes from Jesus Himself. Jesus is the one who coined this idea and allegorized soils into people's hearts and showed us that in similar ways, people's hearts are like soil. So, Jesus tells this parable, the parable of the soils. He gives them a very common picture. A man goes out to sow seed. I just want you to get this picture in your mind. I want you to see the picture that the people there listening to Jesus would have seen in their own minds. So sort of transport yourself back to the first century. What would have, what have they have thought of when they thought of a, a sower sowing seed? A very common activity in that day. A farmer would have had a, a side-hung bag with a big open mouth in it, as you might imagine. He would throw the seed. He'd grab a handful and throw the seed. A, a, a practiced, uh, long-time farmer, he would understand the the way, how much to grab, the, the weight of the bag, he would understand how he should space his steps, how he should keep his pace, the distance between uh, the, his laps of his field. He would know exactly how to do this. He would be in a rhythm. He would take this out, scatter, take this out, scatter. He had a, a way that he would do this. And this is the picture that Jesus was bringing to their mind. A man went out to sow seed. A very common sight in Galilee, especially since that area As we learned early in Matthew, that area was a very fertile area where you could do this. And like I said before, for the most part, until the very end, this is a very common story. It's a pretty boring story. This man goes out to sow seed. There's nothing really surprising about this or dramatic about this. Again, a pretty boring story. You could even call it a story. I'm not even sure if you could. It's just a description that they all would have been familiar with. I like to imagine maybe when Jesus was teaching this parable, maybe they looked over and there was a man in a field sowing seed. They didn't say that that was true, but I like to imagine that they could have seen this happening. It was so common they would have understood this. A couple of other things I want to point out about farming and sowing seed back then, just so you get the picture. The way they divided land up in that day, 
Again, Jesus would have no need to explain all this and mention this, but for us, we need to know. On the outskirts of each town, they would divide the land up. If you're poor, obviously, you wouldn't have much land. Maybe your family had handed it down and handed it down, but, but you didn't have much. Maybe not bigger than half of the sanctuary here. You would have just a little, a little plot where you could grow just enough food to make a little bit of money for taxes and, and to feed your family. Other more wealthy people would have many lots of land. They would have many sections of land, and, and they would have servants go out and collect the product and make money. But these little plots of land would be separated by mounds of dirt. So you can even imagine in our own auditorium, you'd have one plot here and one plot here and, and one plot there, and there would be a mound of dirt sort of encircling each plot, and that mound of dirt is how you traverse through that area. If you wanted to get to your field, which was five fields beyond, you would walk on that little mound of dirt through the fields, get to your field, and you could sow seed in your field. So you had these mounds of hardened dirt. You might want to call it a berm, a, 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 mount, a, a little mound of, of dirt that people had walked on so much it was compressed. It was like rock. It was so hard, it was impenetrable. Seeds couldn't grow there. Not only for the fact that Birds might come pick up those seeds that had landed on those little mounds, but because people would walk along and crush the seed that had landed there if the birds hadn't gotten to it first. And that helps you understand this first idea, this first soil here. It lands on this soil that's impenetrable, and before it has time to get down in the soil and germinate and grow, you can picture in your mind this sower throwing it there, that seed bounces off and gets crushed or gets taken away by birds. One more thing just to put in your mind uh, so you're not too confused about the way Jesus tells this parable. A lot of times in those days, and I'm sure there's a name for this method, uh, maybe Zach Johnson can tell me what it is, but there's a name for this type of method where they would uh, plow after they laid the seed down. So most of us who aren't farmers, we think that there's only one way. You, you plow the field, then you go in and you plant the seed, but there, there are ways of, of plowing after you throw the seed, and that's the typical way back then, so don't be too confused about what's happening here. Uh, this guy isn't careless. He's just throwing the seed along his field, and he will come along later and plow it to plant the seed. All right, now we got that picture in our minds. That's what's happening. That's the image that Jesus is drawing from to help us understand this first parable. A sower, verse 3 and 4, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. The first soil is the hardened soil. The hardened soil. Maybe you want to write that down. You said some seeds fell along the path. And now that you know a little bit about first century farming, you know exactly what Jesus is talking about. You have the same picture that the people in the first century had in their minds when Jesus told this parable. The farmer is spreading his seed, inevitably, he's spreading seed on the edge of his field, and some of that seed goes up on the path, on that little hardened berm. The seed would fall on that hard soil, soil that was so hard that the seed, like I said, could never penetrate. And here Jesus says the birds came and picked up that seed. We know that Jesus' parables, a lot of times when the gospel writers are putting together these gospels, they sort of reduce Jesus' preaching or teaching down so that they're not just, you know, have a book that's endlessly long. Uh, John, we know, did that because he said, if I recorded everything that Jesus said and did, uh, the, book couldn't, the world couldn't contain the book. So we know that they reduce things down, and we know that even in this parable, Jesus adds 
uh, I believe it's in Luke, he adds the idea of people walking along and crushing it. But the idea is the same. This seed does not go down in the dirt. It hits the dirt. It bounces. It just lies there until it's either plucked away by birds or it is crushed under the feet of people walking by. The point here is not the idea of the plowing. The point is not the power of the seed or the power of the the farmer, the sower. It's all about the type of soil. Look down at verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, it doesn't mean he just can't understand it or comprehend it. There are plenty of lost people that understand the, the contours of the gospel. Jesus died for our sins and that kind of thing. It's not understand like comprehend, but accept it and believe it. That's what Jesus means by understand it. The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what happens. This is what was sown along the path. The seed is the Word, Jesus says. I think it's important to point out what Jesus is talking about. Any word, just sort of some theological data, just some religious info? Is that what He means by word? We're told that when Jesus told this parable Luke, He says, the Word of God. And so, He's speaking of, for them especially, it would have been the 39 books of the Old Testament that pointed to the Messiah. The Word of God is the the specific revelation that God gave to mankind. If we believe God is God, and truly is God, and a loving God, then He has the ability and the, the benevolence to give humans His Word and to preserve that through the centuries. He has the ability to give us something written down on paper not just stories or fairy tales that we have to remember, but He has the ability to assign men to put this down in words and write these things down and preserve them through the ages. God has the power to orchestrate history to preserve these things so that people can hear His actual Word, what He has to say, what He has to say about salvation. Now, this is the the climax of His Word, isn't it? The peak and the apex of God's Word is the message of the gospel. It begins with this idea that that God created this beautiful world to glorify Himself, to to bring honor and glory and to to, uh, exalt Himself, and it's not prideful for God to do it because He deserves it. God creates the world for this purpose. He creates humans to worship Him, much like He created the angels to worship Him. He creates humans to worship Him, and humans rebelled. They corrupted They rebelled against that objective to worship God. They rejected and went after their own cravings, their own appetites. They looked upon the one thing God told them not to do, and they craved it. It looked good to eat. God created this universe for His glory. He positioned man to be over over this world, over this universe, to have dominion over it. Man rebels. He casts the whole world under a curse because of their sin. And because God is just, He must punish this rebellion. He must bring punishment to sin. Ultimately, He's responsible for the justice of this whole universe. But instead of just destroying the universe which is what this universe deserved and all humans deserved, He provided a Redeemer. He promised that Redeemer all the way back in the book of Genesis. 
And as you read the Word of God, this becomes clearer and clearer and clearer as we get closer and closer to the birth of Christ. Christ arrives. He provides His life as righteousness. He acts perfectly so that when we stand before God, we cannot... We don't have to come to God and say, hey, look what I did, God, for you. We can say, I'm covered with the righteousness of Christ. And Christ also provided the payment for our sins so that we don't don't have to stand before God and say, all right, I'll take my my licks. I know you're going to punish me. No, Christ took our punishment for us. Christ provided power over sin and death and His resurrection. And this is the climax. This is the pinnacle of the Word of God. This is the pinnacle of the gospel. And this is what's described here. This is what Jesus is pointing to, this word that is going forth, this message that is come to, come to its apex, comes to its pinnacle in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the message of the Word of God in a nutshell. So when Jesus says the seed is the Word, this is what's going out, the message of the gospel of Jesus. It's going out. He's talking about the, the whole Word, but also that final pinnacle message of the gospel. He's talking about the message that He came to establish a new kingdom. He's going to reestablish Eden eventually, and He's going to call a people to Himself. Now, I want to be clear about the message of the Word of God because many folks since the beginning of time have sought to challenge the message, to add to the message, to alter the message, maybe to make it a little more palatable, tasty, for non-Christians to hear. They, they, they say something like this, well, there's a lot of stuff in this Bible that are sort of embarrassing for us Christians to believe. So why don't we just make this a little bit more palatable? We'd be way more popular, for instance, if we didn't believe in creation. Christianity would, would gain in many ways if we rejected some of these weird things like virgin birth, resurrection. So through the years, people have tried to alter the Word of God to make it more palatable, but then it becomes not the Word of God anymore. It becomes man's Word. And the truth of the matter is, if you look at just the mathematics here, I don't think Jesus is trying to make us do math here, but if you just look at the mathematics here, you realize that the Word will be rejected by around 75%. This sower sows seed, and three out of four soils rejects it. They reject it in different ways, but they reject it. So our objective is not to try to make the Word of God more palatable. It's just to share the Word of God, to share the gospel, to share the truth of the gospel as it is written in Scripture, and not try to make it more tasty for people to swallow. Uh, You get the picture of this particular type of soil. The Word lands on some people's hearts and does not penetrate at all. They're like that hard soil. The Word comes like a seed on hard ground, and it just bounces. They don't like it. They don't want to know about it. They don't care. They are already living in some level of rejection. And it says they don't understand. Again, that doesn't mean they, don't, they can't comprehend the truths of the gospel. It means they don't want to believe. They don't want to accept. They reject even as the seed is in the air coming in their direction. They're already in rejection. They have hardened hearts. 
And so that seed just bounces and rolls and is quickly crushed or plucked up because, again, they've either purposely or tacitly given Satan preeminence in their life, and that seed goes away. You know people like this? I do. Maybe you have family members. Some of you have friends, neighbors. The gospel, the word comes to them, and it makes no, no difference in their life. They're unimpressed. They don't care. Maybe even they're, they're so calloused about it, they get angry when you try to share the word of God to them. And the truth is, it can be even more complicated than that, right? It doesn't just have to be someone who gets angry when you try to share Christ with them. It can be even more complicated than that. If you were to pick someone in this day that Jesus is preaching, if you were to pick someone in, in that day who had hardened hearts, who would it be? Well, of course, it would be the Pharisees and the scribes. But that's because we, we know about the hearts of the Pharisees and scribes. In that day, the people didn't know that the Pharisees and scribes had hardened hearts, they didn't know that till after they see the rejection of the Word spoken by Jesus. And so in that day, they thought of all people, maybe they would receive the Word, they would receive it with gladness because they're very religious and very moral and very sincere. Well, the same could be true of our day. Sometimes you think people are very receptive, they're very warm, they're very kind, they seem to be really nice, but down deep inside is a hardened heart, hardened soil. So this parable is a warning. This is sort of the first application. It's a warning for us. Hard hearts may not be openly rejecting, but they nevertheless are rejecting the Word of God. Down deep inside, they have no place. They do not believe. They may even attend church. They may even come and do things. They may be smiling, happy, moral people, but in the end, they reject the Word of God, and they have no desire to truly repent and believe. This lesson is a word of warning, but it's also an encouragement to those of us who are believers who are trying to share the gospel, isn't it? There will be those who do this very thing. They reject the Word. You share the Word, and it just bounces. There's no difference. It doesn't make a difference in their hearts. Don't be discouraged. Jesus said this is the way it would be as the kingdom grows, as the Word goes out, as missionaries go out. Did you know that they call the father of the modern missions movement, his name was William Carey, did you, did you know that he witnessed to people for seven years in India before he got one convert? There are some missions organizations that would have brought him back home or shuffled him over to some administrative position because he wasn't producing. But William Carey continued to persevere and believe, yes, there's going to be lots of rejection. And eventually, he led many, many thousands to Christ and started and initiated, really, the modern missions movement as we know it today. And this is what Jesus describes as a part of His kingdom. This is what's going to happen as the Word goes out, as the message that I'm giving you, the gospel, uh, uh, the gospel of, of me, gospel of Jesus Christ, goes out, the pinnacle message of the Word, as it goes out, there will be those who have hardened hearts. And much like this hardened soil, they will re- reject the Word of God, and whatever they have will be taken away from them. All right, I think we have time for another type of soil. Number two, the shallow soil. Verses five and six, other seeds fell on the rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. 
Now, a little description of this is necessary because we might miss what's going on here. When he says rocky ground or rocky soil, it doesn't mean soil with a bunch of small rocks in it. That's what I think of. When I hear the, the phrase rocky ground or rocky soil, I'm thinking of dirt with a bunch of rocks in it. And you and I know that if dirt has a bunch of rocks in it, stuff can still grow in it. I mean, the roots will go around and find its way, and, and things can still grow when there's some little rocks. But that's not the phrase that's used here in the original. The phrase that's used here in the original refers to a, a, a geological fact about Israel in that day. In that day, they had these big plates of rock. Sometimes they were 30 feet below the surface of the ground. Sometimes they were 40 feet. Sometimes they were just below the surface, just a, like a plate, like a, a big shelf of rock. That's what Jesus is talking about, a shelf of rock with a little bit of nice soil on the top. Some of you live down uh, where I do in the Echo Bravo, Eva, Eva Beach, that's what Ryan calls it, the Echo Bravo. Eva Beach, uh, a lot of us suffer this fact. If you dig very deeply, you're into coral, old coral, and, and sometimes stuff can't grow. You can plant things, but it can't grow because there's just not a way for it to grow. It first kind of looks good and healthy. It seems to be taking the water. It seems to grow a little bit, and then suddenly it just stops growing. It doesn't get big. If it doesn't find some way through that coral, it's it's just going to sort of wither. Um, some of you green thumbs can tell me maybe a way I can get around some of this, but, but this is, we know this here, and this is a fact about the people of Israel. They knew this. Sometimes there are places where you plant something, and six inches, eight inches below the surface, there is a, a shelf of rock, and that plant, all of its energy, all of the, the sun, all of the nutrients, all of the water goes not to developing roots, but to developing that shoot. In fact, those plants oftentimes grow faster than any other plants. All the energy, all the things are used to, all those nutrients are used to, to make that shoot just spring up really fast. But when the sun comes out, it's scorched and it dies and there's no root. There's a big shoot, but no root. Who is this? Jesus describes them down in verse 20. Look there. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, endures for a little while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Now, you've seen this, haven't you? Most of you have been in church long enough. You've seen people come and go, haven't you? Folks get all excited about the gospel. Oh, they're passionate, man. And everyone talks about these people like, wow, man, this person's so passionate. Boy, they, they're going to bring real life to our church. Finally, our dead church. This person is so passionate, and then suddenly they're gone. All their passion is dispelled. All this hope that everyone had in that person is gone. They were there for a while. They were so enthusiastic, so involved, so excited, and then they just disappear. Years ago, I was in Thailand working with some missionaries, and uh, this particular missionary said uh, they had a problem in this the people group that he was working with, and he said the problem was most of the people who receive the gospel, pray a prayer of repentance, seem like they're excited about Jesus. Most people, within a few months, a little bit of persecution at home, a little bit of persecution from that Buddhist priest they knew or someone else they knew, or maybe just out of their own fear of of, of spirits or animistic things that they knew in their, in their hearts or they believed in their hearts before, 
they fall away. A little persecution, a little temptation, a little bit of pressure comes along and they fall away. For that reason, the missionary told me, he said, in this area anyway, the more mature Christians wait an entire year before they baptize a new believer. Now, I don't know how that pairs up with Scripture and all that stuff. Someone, theologian, can figure that out. But I think in, in terms of finding out if someone is genuine or not, it certainly does the, does, does the trick. During that year, this missionary told me, if you asked an older Christian about a new Christian, if you said in that first year, if you said, is that person a Christian? They would not say, yes, but we're going to wait to baptize them. They would say, we'll see. I think that's a pretty good way to think about real enthusiastic folks who come in, who get saved, they're in 100%. Maybe you don't see this a lot. You're not a pastor, but as a pastor, I do see this. Someone will come, the hard times have hit them, I bring them to my office, I take them the gospel, I share Christ. I did just, just, just a couple months ago, I did this. Someone came to the office, I shared Christ with them, he prayed a prayer of repentance, he came to church one more time. I haven't seen him since. I've called him, I've emailed him, I've texted him, nothing. Well, this is the seed sown on rocky ground or ground with rock below it. All this energy is used for something visible. All this passion is used for the surface, for the production of something that that people can look on and congratulate. But in the end, they're all shoot and no root. All right, let's wrap this up. The application is the same. The warning is to not be like that. I don't think everyone in here is a pretty long-term Christian, uh, but it it could last a long time. You can fake it for a long time. I've known people who faked it for a couple decades, even more, several decades. Some people have faked it all the way to their death, and we'll learn that when we look at the parable of the wheat and the tares. But the encouragement or the, or the, um, uh, the warning is to, is to not be this kind of soil. Don't, don't be the kind of person who has some enthusiasm about the things of God, and then you just sort of get into your rhythm of life, and God really doesn't have much of that, that big of a place in your life, those prayers you prayed about surrendering everything, sacrificing all, going for broke, those prayers aren't prayed anymore. Don't be like that. Don't be the shallow soil. Positively, the encouragement for believers is, again, this happens. This is going to happen in church. This is going to happen as you spread the Word, as you share and spread that seed and sow that seed. You'll find people who respond with joy at first and eventually turn away. This is all according to what Jesus is saying. It's going to happen in the kingdom. There'll be people who respond in these ways, all a part of the plan. All right, we got two more kinds of soil, and we will look at those kinds of soil next week. Let's have a word of prayer, and then I'll offer a benediction. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your truth. May we not be the hardened soil or the soil with rock underneath. May our repentance be genuine May we not be fakes. May we be people who have a a long-term endurance and love for you and for your word and the gospel. May our passion not just be a a flame that once burned long ago, but a, a, a passion that continues even today, even if it's steadier, even if it's dimmer than what it was at first, Lord. May we continue to burn for you. May we continue to share Christ. Give us a love and a desire to see you glorified in our lives and to spread your word. 
And Lord, as always, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that you've opened their eyes, their hearts to the meaning, the message of the gospel. Lord, grant them repentance and faith. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.